Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In this episode, Wisdom Labs' Parneet Powell talks with Adam Gazelli. Adam Gazelli, MD, PhD, is a professor in neurology, physiology, and psychiatry at UCSF, and is the founder and executive director of Neuroscape. Dr. Ghazali is co-founder and chief science officer of Akili Labs and Jazz Venture Partners. He has filed multiple patents, authored over 125 scientific articles, and delivered over 500 invited presentations around the world. He recently co-authored The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. And now, Adam Ghazali, interviewed by Parneet Paul. On the Wise at Work podcast today is a neurologist, cognitive neuroscientist, entrepreneur, part-time photographer, and full-time intellectual rock star, who says that we are in the middle of what he calls a cognition crisis, one of our greatest challenges in the 21st century at the level of climate change. But the reason I'm so excited to talk to him today is that he doesn't just alert us to the dangers of our declining attention and cognition and the fallout of using technology, but he is one of the few scientists in the world who is actually solving for this problem. And he's pioneering a new era of digital medicine. He says his goal is to use technology to not only improve our cognition, but to refine our behaviors and to elevate our minds. Adam, welcome to the Wise at Work podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by first asking about this notion of the cognition crisis. What do you mean when you talk about the cognition crisis sort of from a more global scale? The idea of a cognition crisis is just something that I'm still distilling. But what I mean by it is essentially a crisis of our minds, of how our minds operate and not how we accumulate information or skills. We've done a fine job on that as humans and passing those along across the millennia. But when it comes to how our minds operate, and I use cognition very broadly to include perception, attention, memory, emotional regulation, reasoning, decision-making, creativity, empathy, compassion, love, wisdom, all of these critical elements of really what it means to be human. My observation, uh, both from my work and from traveling around the world and speaking on this and related topics, is that as a global society, we have not prioritized either the assessment of these abilities or the optimization of them, both for people that we'd consider healthy and for people who we consider impaired in some way. And that with the incredible but also challenging evolution of our environment, largely through technology, we have not kept pace with it. And we're paying a price for that. And that price is a crisis that I don't feel has been recognized in its full breadth yet. I think all of us can certainly vouch for sort of some of the effects that we're feeling of this crisis, this recognition of what technology is doing to us. And I know there's a whole set of designers and technologists who are leading the way for a more ethical design of technology. Folks like Tristan Harris, he just set up the Center for More Humane Technology. So I love that you're in that group and highlighting really the urgency of this situation. 
So I want to make this even more granular for our listeners who are in the workplace. So say I'm a CEO, I'm an HR leader, or I'm an individual contributor at work. I'm listening to this podcast maybe at work, at lunch. I'm, you know, in an open office environment. I have a desktop or a laptop in front of me. I have multiple tabs open. I'm close to my phone. I might have other devices. I have a back schedule, back-to-back meetings, and I have deadlines that I have to meet. So when we look at this picture, can you describe how my brain in the situation in the workplace is trying to keep up with all of this information. So for example, what might the interferences or challenges to my attention be that I may or may not be aware of? Yeah, it's a great question. It's really the core of why we have a crisis right now. I find it helpful to back up, like back up, you know, a million years (laughs) and think about how the brain evolved in the first place. And really our brains allow us to do one thing, in its core, it's to interact with the environment around us. A lot of other things have come out of that, but that's why it evolved, right? And so if you look at our primordial ancestors, even single cell organisms, what we do is we take in information, we call that perception, we process it, thinking and feeling, and then we respond to it. And that cycle known as the perception action cycle is still at the core of how our brains operate. Because of, you know, the wondrous evolution of the human brain, we've now have this ability to pause in between how we perceive and how we respond. So a lot of other animals, especially more primitive animals that have not evolved in the same way, are reflexive in how they respond to their environment. But we still have a lot of these ancient characteristics of our brain. In my book that I published last year, The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World is the subtitle because we are ancient brains in a lot of ways. Our brains are capable of amazing things, and I'll pause on the most amazing part of it, but we are still ancient, and we still have this sensitivity to the environment, and we still have these ancient driving forces to seek out information. Information has been shown to act as a reward in the primate brain and the brain of monkeys in a very similar way to food and juice rewards. And so I would say that, you know, at our core, we're really information-seeking creatures. And the reason I wanted to back up before being more granular and answering your question is because we have to appreciate that despite the fact that we feel so advanced, and we are in many ways, we are still very ancient. And so the environment that our brains evolved in is dramatically different from the environment that we live in now and that we work in. How information is accessible to us is just dramatically different. You know, we know because of all the sources of information and how they could ping us rather than us reaching out for them, we have so many more decision points about where we suppress information we think is irrelevant and how we make decisions about trying to parallel process information when we want to do more than one thing at a time. And this is the core of the challenge in everywhere, but in the workplace for sure, especially modern open offices. So you have this interference that exists, and we could break down interference, and I break it down into distraction and multitasking, and we could go deeper if you want. But we have this interference that exists. There's probably nowhere it's more intense than the actual workplace. And We could either be unaware of that interference and just sort of surf through our day as best we can using our intuition, 
or we could understand the strengths and weaknesses of our brain and make it more informed decisions about how you navigate your day so that you're not just maximally productive, but also happy and stress-free and living a quality life as well. So that's you know sort of the big picture. How do we understand our brains and how it interacts with the environment, how environment has changed, and then how do we make the most informed decisions about how we behave and act during the day? So if I understand that correctly, and I think you were alluding to what you call the optimal foraging theory in your brilliant book, The Distracted Mind, which is a great read, by the way, to our listeners, and it's a quick read. The takeaway there is that you say we shouldn't feel guilty about the fact that we are so distracted. I mean, that's, I think, one of the big takeaways, trying to get a little more empathy, if you will, for our own brains and our own evolution, and realize that technology is sort of this added layer of complexity on a wiring system that is trying to optimize for information. So we are actively seeking new information, novelty that gives us a hit of dopamine. It's really interesting. We want to seek out more of that. But then also coming back to what you were saying, realizing that there's a lot of things that we can do once we build this awareness around distraction. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what those distractions and interferences are. Yeah. So, you know, as you described, we have these ancient reward systems that evolved to allow us to survive. But as we have evolved to the human brain, we've found a reward that can exist through information alone, not even nutrients, let's say, which was our earliest sources of reward. And it is a strong driving force. And recognizing it is healthy, I would say, but not enough, right? We recognize some things are good for us and some things are bad for us, and it doesn't in itself lead to change. So we're in this modern environment, and these challenges on our ancient brains have always existed. Technology has not aided them, but I think it is clear to everyone that has done research in this domain that it has aggravated these challenges of our environment on our ancient brains. And so we have environment that has all of the elements that are part of what our goals are. So you might have a very clear goal. It could be as simple as writing an email or writing an article or having a phone conversation. And that is what you are trying to accomplish. And then we have a whole host of interference that exists, whether we're aware of it or not. That interference comes in two formats. One is what I refer to as distraction. That's irrelevant information for your goal. It might not be for other things, but for your goal that you are aware is irrelevant to your goal and you actively want to try to ignore. And then the other is what I call multitasking. It's irrelevant for your primary goal, but you believe that you should or you could parallel process that and you try to do them at the same time. They're both forms of interference, but one, you decide not to engage with it, one, you decide to engage with it. We now know that both of them degrade performance, whether or not you're aware of it. If you are doing something that's attention demanding, and that's what your goal is, and the distraction and the multitasking is also attention demanding, it will degrade performance. And there is a tremendous amount of data from multiple fields, including from our own work at UCSF using neuroimaging, that shows that is the case. 
One little other detail here that's worth pausing on is goal-setting abilities and how that, in my mind, is the pinnacle of what the human brain is capable of. This wouldn't really be a problem if we just had modest goals. <laughs> if you really only had one goal at a time, you would have a lot less challenge with our modern environment. And most animals don't have multiple goals at a time. But the human brain has the ability to set these incredibly time-delayed goals. You could set a goal a decade in the future you could also set multiple goals that interweave with each other, and you can have your multiple goals interweave with another person's multiple goals. And so the conflict that we face in modern society is a disconnect between our goal-setting ability and the limitations in our capability of actually accomplishing those goals. And so we have this conflict between what we want to do and what we're actually capable of doing. And that's what bears out multiple times over the course of the day. And so it's important to be aware of interference in our goals, but it's also important to understand how we create goals and what might be more realistic or healthier goals in the first place. I just want to make sure we understand. So you talked about distraction and multitasking. So what is an example of distraction? So let's say I have a goal, I have a meeting that I'm preparing for. I think there are distractions are internal and external yeah, as well. Yeah. So let's break it down. So interference could be either internal or external. And both the internal and external interference have distraction and multitasking. Let's start with internal because that is less talked about but very important. So an internal distraction is, again, so a distraction is irrelevant information. You're not trying to attend to it, but it just presents itself. So on the internal side, it would be you're having an important conversation with your boss, and all of a sudden you think about the fight you had with your spouse last night. It's in there. It's been cycling around. You really wish it did not present itself in your mind right now, but there it is. It's a distraction. It's going to disengage you from the conversation you're having, regardless of how important it is. Most of these mind-wandering events are usually negative events. Not always, but the research has shown that most of them are negative, and that's a distraction. If you're lucky, you'll be able to suppress it rapidly. If you can't suppress it, it could be completely incapacitating. And there are clinical conditions where that is a dominant feature, like post-traumatic stress disorder, where these internal distractions are debilitating. They are outside of your control, and they derail your goal-directed activities. The other type of internal distraction is multitasking. So now you're having that conversation with your boss, but you think that you could also plan what you're going to have for dinner that night at the same time, right? This is a <laughs> And we've all done that, haven't we? <laughs> it's a conscious decision, yeah. but it is another type of interference. It will also degrade the depth of the conversation that you're currently having. And so those are both going on. On the external side, they're similar, right? So the distraction here might just be conversations going on around you. And in the workplace, you're again, let's just keep the same goal. The goal is to have this, you know, performance review with your right. boss. This is super important. Exactly. Um, and, you know, because you're in an open office space or maybe even in one of these little fishbowls, but it doesn't cut out all the noise, there's chatter going on. And you're really trying not to pay attention to it because you know it's going to derail your focus. But it gets in. And we could talk more about the research behind this, but that act of suppressing external noise or distraction is not a passive one. It's actually an active resource-consuming mechanism. So you may or may not have success with that, even if you have the best intentions of ignoring it. So it is a filter that is not perfect, and some information may get in and degrade your performance, even if you're not aware of it. And the last one is 
external multitasking. So it would be hard to externally multitask while you're in the midst of a performance of you face to face. But, you know, let's just move this slightly to the left and say that this is a Skype call or even worse, a phone call. Now you have all the opportunity for external multitasking. You could be writing an email at the same time or checking a text message on your lap. So that's how I break down interference. Internal, external distraction multitasking, all four of those occur sometimes simultaneously. And I find it really helpful to understand the breadth of it because they all have the potential to degrade not just our performance in the moment, but other aspects of anxiety and stress and changes in mood as well. And I was just going to allude to the fact, you know, all the research that you pointed out in Distracted Mind around the high price that we pay for this kind of distraction and not being aware. So I'd love to hear a little bit more, especially around the stress and the anxiety portion and the fact that we often use distraction as a way to cope with boredom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot there. You know, the price that we pay is in two main domains, how I think about it. So I tend to think about cognition is what our brain does. It's like the machinery of our brain. If you think about your brain as a machine, as a car, it's how it performs under like laboratory conditions. And then behavior is how it performs on the road, in the real world, with all the other factors. The road might be crappy, you know, it might be raining. Yeah. It's, it's a real world aspect of it. So if you think about interference effects on cognition itself, that's what I do as a scientist, right? I don't really study real world behaviors. I study cognition in the lab with functional brain imaging and the best of conditions that we could expose you to to see what you're capable of. We know from many labs that the full breadth of cognitive abilities is susceptible to decrements from interference. So perceptual abilities, attention to what your main goal focus was, working memory, which is holding information in mind for very short periods of time, long-term memory. We have data both on long-term memory and working memory in our group, emotional regulation, stress management, high-level decision-making. So these core abilities of the mind, cognition, are all susceptible to interference decrements when studied in the laboratory. In the real world, you see the cascading effect of cognitive challenges across safety. You know, the most obvious, of course, is texting and driving, right? Yes. We're not capable of doing that, obviously. I mean, I think everyone knows it doesn't feel right to look away from the road right. and look down at your phone. Right. But there's more subtle things that might be less obvious, like even talking uh, hands-free and driving is a form of interference that has safety consequences. And then, of course, there's the impact on relationships, how we connect with each other, work, which is you know our main focus here, which is just part of this big ecosystem of the impacts, and then, of course, school and education, whether it happens at home with children when they're studying or in the classroom. So as pretty much as broad as it can be, interference has its negative impact. One of the takeaways here as we think about how we can get wiser at work, is to start to become aware of our work environments, to try to optimize those environments to the extent that we can, but also to become aware of the conditions where we're easily distracted. So becoming more mindful, if you will, of the times when you're bored and you reach for your Facebook feed or when you're feeling anxious or stressed, and that's when you might deviate from whatever project you might be working on. And, you know, for us at Wisdom Labs, one of the benefits of our mindfulness practice is that we learn to lean into those moments of discomfort a little bit better. 
which is, again, a product of strengthening some of those attention networks that we're talking about. So, so far, we have mostly been talking about the limitations and the fallibility of our minds. And we didn't even talk about the fact that as we age, this gets worse. Is that correct? Yes, that's not subtle. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously, that's, you know, both depressing and disconcerting. But at the same time, I don't want to lose sight of how incredible our brain is. It's one of the most complex processing systems we know of in the universe. So as a cognitive neuroscientist, if you had to describe how complex and beautiful and capable the brain is, what might you say? Well, you know, I never, ever will stop talking about how amazing the brain is. I've been studying the brain now for almost 30 years myself, and it's everything to me, both as an academic, it's in my business life, it's pretty much what I think about all day long, and not always from a negative perspective. It's hard to not talk about the challenges because they're very clear and they're very timely, and we need to do something about them. So it's reasonable to start a conversation that way. But in general, I'm, I'm very optimistic about our future of our species and being able to manage this crisis that we're in now. I look at it more as a challenge, a grand challenge, one that should be right up there with other big challenges like climate and water and energy, is proving how our minds function. That should be on the list, and it's not on any list that I've ever seen. Our brains are incredible. I mean, I mentioned our goal-setting abilities, which if we didn't have those, there would be no society and language and art and music and technology in the first place. We have this incredible capacity to think into the future and to dream of incredible opportunities that we then create. And it's extraordinary. I think that we will only reach greater heights if we develop a better appreciation for where our limitations arise and how technology has challenged those. So I certainly don't mean it to be pessimistic. I mean it to be an opportunity and a challenge for us to rise to the next level in my mind. How our brains focus our limited resources. I mean, our resources are really actually quite limited, not just in terms of our attention, but even our perceptual abilities. We see a very small fragment of, you know, electromagnetic waves of what light is and what we think about as the world around us is really a very small fragment of what the universe truly is. And despite that, we've created, you know, an amazing global society. And so I am, in general, very excited for the future. I think that we just need to slow down a little bit and not allow technology to control us, but to turn it around. These are tools for us, for humans, and they should be thought about, developed with that perspective. Wonderful. And I think it was a recognition of the incredible capabilities of our brain that contributed to What was probably a turning point in your research career back in 2008? Could you describe that moment when you sort of decided (laughs) to be more proactive with the solutions part of the puzzle? Yeah. So I had been studying the brain and particularly the aging brain, which you alluded to. So all of these aspects of interference 
get worse as we get older. And I'm not talking about Alzheimer's disease, just healthy aging across the adult lifespan. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, all those ages. <laughs> so none of us are exempt. None of us. 20-year-olds, even 20-year-olds aren't really quite, right. quite great at it. But it does get worse as we get older. And I have spent, I spent the first, I guess, half of my career, more than half of my career, just trying to understand the brain, its vulnerabilities, how it changes with age, how interference impacts us. And in 2008, I started giving more public lectures. And I was giving talks for the organization AARP, you know, looking out like over a field of silver heads and speaking about our work on distraction and memory and aging, all the stuff that we've just been talking about. And, you know, I had been giving talks on my research to academic audiences mostly, as most uh, professors do. And to an academic audience, it's endlessly fascinating how you use functional imaging to separate focus and ignore and how you show that it changes with age. So, you know, all good. But now when you're standing in front of the public, yes, that's interesting, but it is not a satisfying end to a story to say, and there you go. Your brains are just degrading. Good luck That's with that. It. Have a good, have a good yeah. evening. And, and I realized that it's just not the story I wanted to tell the rest of my career. I wanted to turn it around, to use the expertise that we have and the methods and the insights from neuroscience to not just understand the brain and how it changes with aging and how it's impacted by our environment, but how we can use all of that to develop stronger brains. You've said that technology has the ability to create powerful experiences, and experiences are the gateway to neuroplasticity, the most powerful way I'm aware of to actually changing the brain. And you talk about video game technology and closed-loop systems. So I'm wondering if you can help our listeners understand neuroplasticity and how these closed-loop systems that you use in the video game technology sort of come together to enhance the capabilities of the brain. Yeah, so the conversation we're having about the amazing things about our brain, probably the most amazing thing is plasticity. It's the ability of our brain to modify itself at every level of resolution, whether we're talking about the neurochemistry, the structure of the brain, its neurons and dendrites and external branching, and its functional activity, its physiology, how information is communicated in networks across mm -hmm. the brain. All of those aspects of the brain are capable of modifications through several different influences. The biggest influence is experience. Experience is how you interact with the environment around you. It is the entire basis of learning this aspect of our brain to change plasticity. You also respond through repair to damage. So damage can also drive plasticity, but it doesn't need to be damage. It just could be experience alone. And we used to think that the ability of our brain to modify itself in response to experience really ended after critical stages of development, and then we just declined the rest of our lives. We know that is not true. Our brains retain plasticity, although it does seem to decline throughout our lives. And so it's an opportunity in my mind. And that really was the core of what I latched onto back in 2008, was the idea of harnessing plasticity through experience and not reaching into the normal toolkit that a neurologist like myself would go to, which is a drug, a small molecule, pharmaceutical, goes by many names. 
but it is the main stay. You know, it is the approach that all of my colleagues, and including me as a physician, use when we treat impairments of cognition. So it makes sense that that would be something we would think about to improve attention in older adults, because that's what we tend to do as physicians. But I became more interested in the idea of using experience as essentially as a treatment to drive plasticity to improve cognition. In many ways, it's an ancient concept, right? So mindfulness and other contemplative traditions and meditation practices are experience. They're experiential treatments of a sort. And they were used to improve how minds function, you know, thousands of years. So it's not a new idea. Therapy, education, all of those things, even physical fitness training are experiential treatments in contrast to our pharmaceutical approach, which is not experiential, right? It's a molecule that has direct action on, on the system. So we have an ancient practice of experiential treatments as a way of improving the brain. Why don't we use them in modern day medicine? Why don't doctors prescribe meditation or physical exercise? It's rare if you have an attention or mood condition. There's lots of data out there that they're helpful. Why do they prescribe you know, in a siloed way, pharmaceuticals. And it was an interesting sort of mental exploration I went through at this stage when I was thinking about where I was going to spend my time. And the main challenge that I have sort of discovered through lots of research in the literature and talking to folks and thinking about it is that experiential treatments have suffered in medicine, let's say. I would say it's true for education as well, but just focusing on medicine for a moment when we have impaired minds, because they are really hard to deliver in a reproducible manner. There are better practitioners, worse practitioners, different practices. And because of that lack of reproducibility, it has created a lot of difficulties in producing randomized control trials. That is what the entire regulatory industry led by the FDA relies upon in making approval recommendations to physicians and what to use. And it's also hard to test, you know, in anyone because of those. And despite the accumulation of data that I find very convincing, it has suffered because of that. And so the basic idea was, could we create an experience using technology that delivers elements of many practices, including meditation and other ways of interacting with the environment and physical fitness and music, and have it reproducibly and adaptively delivered to a person in a way that's fun and engaging and accessible. And the way I figured out how we can do that was through video games. But that is why video games were there in the first place, is because it's not the video game itself. It is essentially a delivery system of a high-level, engaging, adaptive experience that if properly targeted through the mechanics of the game can improve aspects of how your brain works because your brain has plasticity. And you're not talking about just any kind of video game. I mean, the sophistication that you're using in developing this technology is incredible. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So all of those features of it, right? How do you create the mechanics of gameplay that activates networks selectively? Selectively in a way that we've never accomplished with a small molecule delivered through a pharmaceutical. We just have never had selectivity in that domain. So you need selectivity by using the mechanics of the gameplay. 
but you also need to have what we call the closed loop system. You need adaptivity such that the challenge that you're experiencing as a player is adapting to your performance metrics. So whether you're eight or 80 or have autism or Alzheimer's or a very you know high performing 30 year old, the experience needs to understand that, not through top down, not through you telling it that, but just by monitoring your performance in real time and then delivering a challenge to you that is perfectly positioned right at the level of your ability so that it's not so hard that it's frustrating and not so easy that it's boring. The other thing we could do with the closed loop system is to give feedback and reward in real time. And that creates that true depth of engagement and immersion in the experience, which I also believe is a critical part of how experience harnesses plasticity. So these are the specific details of our design principles of closed loop adaptivity and feedback and mechanics that target neural systems that go into developing the game. And then of course, there's all just the regular aspects that make games fun, art, music, story, reward cycles over, you know, different time scales. And so if you put all of that together, you need an incredibly multidisciplinary team and you need years <laughs> and lots of resources. So almost everything that we create, and now we have over six at Neuroscape at UCSF, they all have taken a couple years to build an R&D and pilot test before we move into the research phase. And you're not satisfied with sort of just building another amazing video game and launching it in the consumer space, you're literally pioneering this new era of digital medicine. So can you talk about the most recent results of your study that have been very promising? Yeah. So in parallel to what we've just been talking about, which is on the academic side of my life. So I'm a professor at UCSF. I'm the director of Neuroscape, a center that has its mission to bridge technology with neuroscience to create these new tools to improve brain function. The majority of my life is just managing that. I've also started some companies along the way to advance our discoveries and our inventions outside of the laboratory and the academic you know, sort of umbrella into the real world. And I know that we need business to do that. I've learned that quite well over the years. And so I created a company called Achille, and Achille licensed the patent that was behind the first game I created called Neuroracer from UCSF. Which was on the cover of Nature magazine. Exactly. So in 2013, we published our first research paper at UCSF from Neuroscape on our work related to the first video game we created called Neuroracer, showing that we can improve attention and working memory abilities in healthy older adults outside of the domain of their closed loop video gameplay. And even with neural recording, show the mechanism by which we accomplish that. So the Nature paper in 2013 really set up the work that Achille does. So the Nature paper, as exciting as it is to me and I think to other people, in my mind is still a signal that there's something there. We're on to something. We could show it across different metrics. We could show it with neural measures. We show sustainability of some of the effects. But it is in itself not enough to lead to prescriptive advice in my mind. In order to do that, we need to build something, you know, more than a prototype of a game, which is really what we build at Neuroscape, to an actual scalable product. And you need to do large-scale research on many people. And so that's what Achille does. So Achille has a big, you know, team of game designers that a lot of them, uh, the founding ones, were from LucasArts when we built our first game, Neuroracer, and other industry veterans from the game world, which is really exciting. And um, so we're part based in Boston, part based in San Francisco, we're 50-50, and Achille has this unique 
mission of building these tools, these experiential treatments delivered through video games, not as consumer products, not because it's not valuable to have consumer products, but because no one has yet reached the highest level of regulatory approvals for these type of experiential treatments to move them into the world as medicine, as prescribable, reimbursable medicine right up there with pharmaceuticals. And so that's what Achilles has done. Over the last uh, five years, we've built a way better game from the concept behind Neuroracer. So just to make clear, the patent's not for a video game. The patent is for a game engine, a methodology of interactive experience. You could build a non-game on top of it or you know a simulation or a video game. Achilles now built a way better game than Neuroracer was because we have a way better design and development team over there. And now has a dozen studies going on across multiple clinical conditions from post-traumatic stress disorder to traumatic brain injury to anxiety to autism, depression, early Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis. And then the study that has garnered the most attention was the completion of our phase three trial for pediatric ADHD. So just to make it clear what that is, a phase three trial is the research study that you do right before you submit to the FDA for approval of a drug or a device. So it is a multi-site trial, randomized control, and has like a whole list of rigorous aspects around its design because, you know, a lot of treatments are really very dangerous. And so it has a very sort of prescribed structure. So that was an 18-month study, 20 sites, 350 children across the U.S. engaged in a placebo control study, the game that we call Evo, the in-house name for it at this stage. And what we showed and what we reported in December, I'm actually not on that study as an investigator. I think it's most important that my colleagues take it through this stage. The PI is a really awesome professor at Duke. And what was shown was that we were able to significantly, with a reasonable effect size, improve attention ability in children with ADHD compared to a control group that did not show any improvement. And so what happened this year is that we advance an application through the FDA to get this approved. It's a class two medical device for the treatment of inattention in children with ADHD. If we're successful, it'll be the first non-drug treatment for ADHD, the first prescribable video game, and the first of a new category of medicine that we think of as digital medicine to treat a host of different conditions of the mind. So I'm literally getting chills as you say all this. This is truly a brave new frontier that I'm so glad we are advancing through. I mean, the idea that your physician can prescribe a video game to help improve your attention rather than drugs is just mind-bogglingly amazing. And you also mentioned that there's another game, Meditrain, that you've been working on, mm -hmm. which is a meditation and mindfulness mm -hmm. game. So it's confusing sometimes when I speak because I do wear multiple hats. So Achille, it has Evo or the game from Neuroracer, and they have all these intentions of going through clinical path as a new approach to healthcare. But it's not the only potential outcome of the technology that we create. So Achille is doing that. Back at Neuroscape, we have numerous games that are not associated with Achille or any company. They're research projects and prototypes. And there's a diverse collection of them from body brain trainer to engage to virtual attention. We use things like virtual reality and motion capture and wearable physiological devices and all sorts of technologies to accomplish our goal of creating these closed loop systems to improve brain function. 
One of our new games, one that we're very, very excited about, is called Metatrain. So this is a Neuroscape prototype. It is delivered on an iPad. It was co-developed with a good friend of mine, Jack Cornfield, who actually narrates the beginning of it on how you attend to your breath. It uses principles of concentrative meditation that we then integrate with our closed-loop systems of adaptivity and feedback to create what I feel like is quite a nice soft on-ramp onto how you develop a practice of becoming aware of your breath, focusing on it, noticing when your attention deviates, returning it to your breath, and then holding it there. So, you know, it's really an ancient practice that has lots of research of benefit, but by putting it in this adaptive system with feedback, we can deliver it like essentially through doses <laughs> each day and monitor compliance remotely has all the advantages that any of our other digital technologies uh, are capable of. And so we completed a study of healthy 20-year-olds. It's not a massive study. It's more of the deep dive with EEG recordings and MRI that we do at Neuroscape to understand if there's a signal that something's happening here to see how engaging in Metatrain weekly for six weeks would improve attention ability, specifically sustained attention in external tasks in young people, 20-year-olds, healthy 20 and 30-year-olds that engaged in it. And so we completed that study, and that study was really meant to be a baseline for our study on older adults, which is still where we do a lot of our work, healthy 60 to 80-year-olds playing Metatrain. The older adult study is halfway through, but when we analyzed and unblinded our 20-year-old study, I mean, it was pretty shocking to find such a substantial improvement against control in the sustained attention ability of 20-year-olds after six weeks of Metatrain. This is unpublished data. We are writing it up right now and very, very excited about the findings. This is incredible, the idea that we can give even 20- and 30-year-olds a technology that's engaging enough with the results of sustained attention, because we know how distracted some of these folks can be. Yeah, we're really excited to see where this goes and how we could now move it into as many people's lives as possible. And it may not go the medical route that we've talked about before. It may go ed educational or even a consumer route. So I want to talk a little bit about some practical takeaways for our listeners in the workplace. So if I'm a CEO or if I'm a manager in an office and I want to optimize the work environment so that my employees are attentive, they're creative, or if I want to just improve my own cognition and attention, what are some real practical things that I can start doing today? Yeah, I think the first thing that I always emphasize is awareness. You know, we call it meta-awareness, an understanding of how your own brain works, but not just your own brain, your environment. So helping your employees understand how they set goals. What kind of, are their goals ridiculous? Are they well-intentioned, but completely unachievable, even under the best of circumstances? What are the goals at the setting? And what are the interferences that exist in accomplishing those? And then helping to structure the environment and it's certainly something that needs to be done in a personalized way. Everyone has different styles. But helping your workforce understand the balance between their goals and the interference that exists is critical to develop strategies so that everyone's as effective as they could be and as happy as they could be. I think both of those things are equally important. So understanding elements of how the office is structured in terms of external distraction, in terms of the demands that might be placed by colleagues or even the boss himself 
on multitasking. So, you know, again, how is the environment contributing to the successful accomplishment of goals? How is the employee able to really focus in a sustained way? What systems are in place to allow them that focus? How are breaks being delivered? Just like our physical bodies fatigue, our brains fatigue. But we ignore it all the time until we just become completely ineffective. And then we often go to the type of solutions that we feel overcomes boredom or fatigue, like social media, for example. But these create these sinkholes that just take you further and further away from ever getting back to your goal. And so there are probably healthier types of breaks that you can take, like some mindfulness activity, some light physical exercise, exposure to nature. So how do you allow your team to multitask when it is helpful because it is fun and it is creative and there's good things that could come from it, but then sustain their attention when they need to and take appropriate breaks so that they can be maximally effective throughout the day. Wonderful. And because I have a world-renowned neuroscientist in the house, I couldn't resist running a few urban myths, and we'll do this very quickly. So myth number one, we have a left brain that is analytical and a right brain that is creative. That's not really true. So we know that there is specialization in the brain that exists in lots of domains and hemispherically as well. We know that the language centers are usually on the left side. We know that the right side, especially the areas more in the back of our brain, are very important for spatial attention. And we're still trying to characterize where these differences lie, but it's not as easy to say to package these abilities up and just put them in different hemispheres. We use only 10% of our brain on a regular basis. Right. So that's also not true. You couldn't imagine something as complex as the human brain evolving with like 90% of it as a parking structure and the rest being, you know, the executive offices. (laughs) That would be a huge evolutionary misfail. It would make no sense. Now, I think, you know, a lot of that misinterpretation has arisen because in early neurosurgical operations, recording from different brain areas didn't always show function engaged as clearly as it is like in the visual cortex or the motor cortex. But a lot of our brain is associated. They're making connections between different brain areas and helping create very high complex emergent properties. And so they might not have been immediately obvious. It's also possible that we don't use all of our brain in terms of its capacity, that we are capable of pushing it further as we are with our physical bodies, which might have led to that idea that we don't use all of our brain. But to think that there's just chunks of brain matter waiting (laughs) unoccupied is not really true. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. So, Adam, you've said there isn't any operation in the brain that cannot be optimized through targeted experience. And as we've seen, this has huge implications for medicine that you're working on. You're also working on some projects in education. I believe you have a project in India. Yeah. So the point here is that the tools that we're creating to both understand and improve brain function, despite the fact that they were originally targeted for clinical populations, I'm a neurologist, I work at UCSF, this is how we tend to think. We've now expanded our programs to include education. And we just mean by that healthy, young, developing minds should benefit from the opportunity to use technology to improve all of these aspects of cognition. We have a program in India, foster care children using Metatrain, 
to try to improve sustained attention, just as we did here in San Francisco. And we have programs of over a thousand children between eight and 12 year old around the Bay Area using first assessments, but also now some of our physical fitness meets cognitive fitness training tools to try to improve cognition and, and just healthy developing minds. And when you sort of look out at the next 5, 10, or 15 years, what is your vision for and your aspiration with your research and technology for the world at large and this challenge that we're facing? Where would you love to see it go? Yeah, I think we need to start thinking clearly as technology developers about the tools that we're creating. Do they really enhance what makes us human or do they diminish us? It is important and I hope that we are more responsible with technology development, even those that are directed at entertainment and communication and media. So that has to happen. But we can do a lot more. And that's what I've devoted myself to across all these different domains, whether industry, academics, or investment, is to build technologies that are not just attempting to not hurt people, <laughs> but to actually help optimize how we function so that we can live better lives through technology. And that has not received as much attention as it should have. There's lots of reasons. We have these, you know, really dominant incumbents of our current education and medical system. And, you know, this idea of creating entirely new technologies that can drive brain improvement is a big change. But I am confident that all of the things that feel scary, like artificial intelligence and virtual reality and augmented reality, robots, all of these things can and should be part of the ecosystem that we create to help improve ourselves. And that is what I hope that we'll accomplish. Kevin Kelly, who's the founding editor of Wired, recently said that we have to learn to hold the paradox of technology being a master and slave. And he said that we can't influence the direction of technology, so it's going to keep growing, but we can influence its character. Adam, thank you for being a pioneer and leading this charge of shaping the character of technology for the greatest good of humanity. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, and as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.